0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and I'm very pleased to uh, introduce uh, tonight's guest. He's MLB historian, uh, best-selling author, award-winning researcher, a man of many hats, uh, Mr. John Thorne. John, thanks for joining us tonight.
0: My pleasure to be with you, Brian.
1: All right, well, obviously the first question, what, what are the job duties for MLB historian?
0: It's other duties as assigned. I mean, when you when you get this position, and I'm only the second one to have it after Jerome Holzman, you are attached to the public relations department in the office of the commissioner because they've got to file you someplace. But you wind up working with everybody from marketing to legal to public relations to the commissioner himself.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, your predecessor, Jerome Holtzman, and I think most people know him because uh, of his work uh, introducing the, the, state, the save statistic. And one of the ways uh, for me that the game has gotten worse since I started watching it is now that managers manage with the save statistic in mind. And I want to know, do you think the advantages of the, of the save statistic outweigh the cons?
0: Uh, No, I think the save is a corrupted statistic. It was necessary (laughs) when Jerome proposed it in 1959-1960. He was uh, reporting, I think, for the Tribune at that time, maybe the Sun-Times, but I think it was the Tribune. And uh, there were a couple of Chicago relievers, uh, Don Elston in particular and uh, Bill Henry, the lefty who uh, were doing a terrific job for the Cubs, and there was no way to measure their accomplishments so they would get beat up in salary negotiations at the end of the year. So Jerome proposed the idea of the save in order to help relievers uh, get their due at the salary table.
1: Now, we've heard so much about kill the win, but, I mean, I think that the – the the game itself would be better if we killed the save. Is now in in your mind is there anything that could be done to to maybe make the uh, the save statistic uh, I don't know a little bit better for 21st century baseball?
0: I don't know. I mean we, you know the, the the once the Miller reliever became more important and the setup man became more important, we got the holes. So now we've got the holes, and you can have more than one of those in a game, but you can't have more than one save. But the save was corrupted from the beginning because you could throw three innings in a 19-2 game, and by concluding that uh, that debacle, you would get a save. Now, um, in the Mets' case, they have a pitcher, Joris Familia, who I think got 55 saves two years ago, and everybody thought he was terrific. I thought he was... Uh, like Mitch Williams, just in just an accident waiting to happen. Was, he was always one pitch away from disaster. So there are saves and there are saves. And uh, I, I'm with Brian Kennedy, actually, on the idea that the starting pitcher is uh, going to go the way of the dodo.
1: Well, um, I know that we will uh, talk about that uh, more in just a few minutes, but uh, before we get off the, the subject on, on your official job title of of MLB historian, one thing that I'm aware of is that you did research that found a reference to baseball in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, going all the way back to 1791. And um, I forget the, the time that you discovered that. It was the, the early 2000s. And is, yeah, is it was, that two, it was 2003,
0: and we held a press conference in Pittsfield in May of 2004, and it was a pretty dramatic outcome, and it was reported internationally, and I was doing uh, interviews in the middle of the night in my undershorts with Japanese radio. <laughs> so um, the entire world cares briefly about a new way of looking at baseball, particularly looking at baseball as one of a number of bat and ball games that have been played all around the world since time immemorial. Now, um, what I want to know is, is that Pittsfield, is that still
1: the earliest reference that we have to baseball in this country?
0: It is the earliest reference to baseball by that name, spelled precisely the way we would spell it today, whether one word or two. There are earlier games that um, one is called baseball, B-E-S-T-E, ball, and it was played in, at Princeton College. We have documentation of that in 1786. And we have pretty good documentation that a game resembling baseball was played probably in Connecticut and Massachusetts in 1730 to 1735. But we don't have a box score. You know, We're not going to find that <laughs> holy grail.
1: Now, um, refresh my memory because if if I re- remember correctly, the 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 Pittsfield reference was something about the game couldn't be played uh, too close to the church because the church just got new windows or something like that.
0: Or, am I, or it, yeah, did I dream it, that? Well, there were there were two considerations. One, it would be a profanation of the church grounds to play ball within eighty feet of its uh, building. Um, but there was also the what was what has come to be known as the broken window bylaw, because replacing glass is expensive, and uh, kids playing ball close to the church could be counted upon to uh, break windows.
1: <laughs> oh, I think we've all been there and and broken a window and and had to run. But uh, anyway, let's talk a little bit now about uh, your background. I know that you were not born in this country, but uh, you grew up in New York City. And and you've written about baseball, I guess, in in the time of your youth, uh, what's commonly referred to the glory years of 1947 and 1957. And I want to know what team did you root for and and what are your memories of each of those classic ballparks?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, my father took me to Ebbets Field. For a game on May twelfth, nineteen fifty-seven, and the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers, were already my club. I was ten years old, and um, if you're if you're raised as an immigrant Jew in New York City, you're going to be a Dodger fan. You're going to see yourself as an underdog, and you'll see the Dodgers as the team that best represents your spirit. Uh, There was no way that I was going to go for the Yankees, and um, the, the, the Giants uh, at that time were seen as the province of uh, Irish Catholics. Um, of course, all of these stereotypes fall apart once you, once you start poking at them. But if you were an immigrant Jew, the Dodgers were your club. So when the Dodgers um, left town, I kind of thought they were going for a summer vacation and they'd be back any day. <laughs> so it took, it took me quite a while to stop rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I didn't really embrace the Mets until 1965, even though I was going to their games as early as May of '62.
1: So you you mentioned uh, Ebbets Field, and if you were going to those early Met games, you were obviously in the Polo Grounds. What were your memories oh, of yeah, the Polo and, Grounds? Oh yeah, and I
0: saw I saw the the Dodgers and Giants uh, at the Polo Grounds as well, and uh, I saw the Yankees at the first Yankee Stadium. So you know, I saw a number of games. Between the ages of ten and fifteen.
1: All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your your publishing background. Uh, You've written a book called New York 400, uh, which is not how many games under 500 Terry Collins was with the Mets. What what was that about?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, it's a history. It's a pictorial history of New York City, and I I produced that book. Uh, in conjunction with the Museum of the City of New York, for whom I was a consultant for the better part of a decade, because New York City history is my secret passion. I I write about New York City every now and then just uh, to get away from baseball for a minute or two, and um, usually what happens is you develop an exhibition for the museum and then develop a companion book that to some extent, mirrors the contents of the exhibition. But in this case, we developed the book first, and the book was such a success that we developed an exhibition after the fact. So I have some curatorial background, I have editing and publishing background, and I have a broad range of interests apart from baseball. Um, If I may rattle on, I will say that now that I've been Major League Baseball's historian since um, 2011, it's been a while, I do get letters from people saying, how do I get your job or how do I get a job like yours? (laughs) And um, the answer that I invariably give them is, don't try to learn everything there is to know about baseball because that's an easy trick. And there's some guy on a bar stool somewhere who knows something you don't know. And for you to be the guy... Who really has a different unique perspective on the game? you've got to learn everything you can about the wide world and then bring that back to baseball.
1: Yeah, that's, an, that's an interesting perspective and, and not one that we would necessarily uh, expect to hear. but uh, of, of course, uh, we, we love history, but you know we're here to, to talk about baseball. So let me, let me ask you, you have a, a deep background in in statistics. And how how do you reply to that fan on the bar stool that you were mentioning earlier who who thinks that uh, the game is being hurt by the the proliferation of advanced metrics?
0: I say it's it's an all you can eat buffet and you can pass by certain courses that don't uh, seem appetizing, but knowing more about the game is preferable to knowing less about the game there 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 is no case to be made for ignorance now if you express fatigue with uh, broadcasters who will say he's batting 429 over his last two games because he went three for seven um i'm with you i think statistics can be extraordinarily dull and make for terrible writing because what are statistics but symbols for stories they are the the uh, numerical remains of rather complicated tales that uh, they provide a shorthand, but they don't provide the whole story. So if I tell you that Ted Williams had an on-base percentage for his career of 483, that tells you something about Ted Williams, but you don't really begin to know about Ted Williams, the man, simply by knowing this one figure. And of course,
1: Ted Williams, um, uh, to tie into your earlier point, certainly had a lot to do with, with history, with his uh, war service, and if he hadn't been involved in those two wars, which I, I believe he volunteered for, is that correct? He might have been uh, the, the all-time home run leader. So it, it Actually, is amazing how these things Actually, I wouldn't say that he volunteered so he for both.
0: He volunteered for World War II, uh, but I think he was an unwilling participant in the Korean War. But once he was there, of course, right? he did his best. Yes. All right. Well, um,
1: speaking of statistics, one of one of the things that I think that even the the common fan, even if he isn't up to date on on stats, has noticed the explosion in the the amount of home runs hit over the last two and a half years. W- what what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that baseball needs to do anything to address it, or do you think it's just the normal ebb and flow of the game?
0: Well, there's an ebb and flow factor for sure. If you compare the number of home runs hit in 2017 to the number hit in 2016 you may find that appalling but if you compare it to the number of home runs hit in say 2001 or 2002 the the leap is not so dramatic the the number of home runs is not the product of a juiced ball in my estimation but rather the product of defensive shifts, which make hitting the ball on the ground um, or on the line much more perilous to one's batting average and team run production. So everyone's adjusted their swing slightly. And in going for the long ball, there is a corollary of a strikeout, which is less onerous, less disgraceful than it was once considered to be. The problem with more home runs is that we have fewer balls put into play. Historically, whenever the number of strikeouts have gone up in a league year to year, that's been matched by rising bases on balls totals. But pitching is so great now that strikeouts are going up, bases on balls are going down. But you're getting fewer balls put into play. The three true outcomes uh, theory – of uh, modern baseball can make for a dull ball game. Now
1: you were uh, comparing the home run totals that we have now to the two thousand two thousand and one era, and I think that if you asked most people who were following the game in that time, they would refer to that as the either the silly ball or the the steroids era. And you also said that you don't think that it's necessarily the product of a juiced ball. But I, I think no, a lot of people would, would, would say that the, the stitching on the ball is, is, is different. And one thing that confuses me is that there's a, a certain variance that, that is allowed in the balls. And Major League Baseball always says that the balls are, are manufactured to the standard. But why isn't the standard uh, more closely uh, regulated?
0: I think it's a human activity. Uh, the, the baseballs are not entirely uh, manufactured by machines. There are actual people doing the stitching. And what Major League Baseball looks for is a standard of what they call the coefficient of resilience, or resiliency, I believe it's sometimes phrased. And as long as the uh, bounce to the ounce factor is held within check, within reasonable parameters, the, the, the balls are regarded as being basically the same as they were in previous years. You, you will have a variance in lot-to-lot, lot, in ball-to-ball, ball, and year-to-year, year, but I believe that these differences are tolerable. They're tolerable from a manufacturing standpoint. They're tolerable from an uh, effect-on-play standpoint and tolerable aesthetically. He's John,
1: and I'm Brian, and you're listening to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. We're in the middle of a discussion about the uh, the home run explosion of the past two and a half years, and, and one of the things that John just noted is that uh, strikeouts have gone up as well, which is usually considered a, a cost of doing business when when you're hitting the long ball. Now, you, you made reference to the fact that it's not shameful as it, it used to be. It doesn't look down as much as, as, it, as it once was. Why, why do you think that, that strikeouts at one point had the stigma that they did?
0: Um, in, if you put the ball in play, many good things could happen, including reaching on an error. And uh, the odd thing is that with all the variation in number of hits, the, the death of the triple long, decades ago, the decline in the number of doubles as opposed to home runs. You, we have all these variations, and yet the number of runs scored per game is more or less constant over the last hundred years or so. And that's because errors have been reduced to a minimum. It's a It's a rare sight. The number of unearned the percentage of unearned runs, say, in 1910, 1915, might have been as high as uh, 8 or 10 percent. Now it's, what, less than 1 less than um, percent? In science, what you try to do is um, reduce, reduce variables, reduce unpredictables, reduce risk. And this is the same in manufacturing. But as you eliminate some of the appealing fallibilities of of our race, uh, the game can be a bit mechanized and predictable. So, um, oddly, Joe Madden, the uh, manager of the Cubs, in this past year, employed fewer defense fewer infield shifts than any other club. Yet he was the pioneer of infield shifting with Tampa Bay. So I think a lot of this is cyclical. And um, people will focus on length of game as a real problem for baseball. It is a minor problem. Pace of game is a huge problem.
1: Right, and I don't think anyone minds sitting and and watching a, a three-hour plus game that uh, has lots of strategy and lots of action. But so much of it seems to be wasted, whether it's the the pitcher holding the ball or the the batter going out of the box or catchers coming to the mound to talk to the pitchers, and obviously or the, the stream of relief pitch pitchers,
0: pitches,
1: and, is, and, yeah, yep, that, that yep. we get per game. And and you hear people wanting to wanting to address those and I, and I think that that's it, at least on the surface a noble idea but I'm not sure if if it's the right thing to do. I mean I, I'd, I'd like sure to see either, it organically. Right? Yeah, I'd like to see it organically people come to the, the conclusion that you're you're better off running a bullpen like they used to when I first started watching the game in the 1970s when it was not odd at all to see a relief pitcher go two, three, four innings in a game. And I think at some point the, the pendulum will uh, shift back to that, or at least that's my sincere hope. But, but what about some of those other ones? Where, where do you stand on the idea of a, uh, of a pitch clock where the umpires forcing the batters to stay in the box like they allegedly did a few years ago?
0: I think these mechanisms have had some positive effect in the minor leagues where they've been tried for a number of years now. Even at AAA, I think we're in the third year of the pitch clock. Um, it will take a while for it to have an impact at the major league level. But the thing to consider is that as new players come into the majors, they will have experienced the pitch clock in the minors. So I think habits change in response to conditions and training. So I think the next generation of players, even five years from now, the, the newer players will, will come to the big leagues um, with a tendency to play a little quicker. I think that will help.
1: As Mets fans, we've we've certainly noticed that with a couple of the relievers who came up this year, and I'm thinking Paul Sewell and, and Chase Bradford, who beat, even the announcers were shocked about they got the ball and they threw the ball. And even though they didn't have what would appear to the naked eye to be as outstanding stuff, they were able to get outs because they had that nice, quick uh taste to them. So uh, I certainly hope that we, we see more of that in the future. But you, you brought up the minor leagues. So that brings to mind another question that I wanted to ask you. And and that's that the Mets, they just announced that they're going to purchase their AAA farm club next season. Yep. And there's only a couple of teams that own their, their top affiliate. And it, it just seems odd to me that these owners of major league Clubs who are fabulously wealthy individuals, and they put themselves at the mercy of these, these other, these minor league owners,
0: it's like what,
1: every two, every four years they have to renew their affiliation, and it just seems like a, a, an easy thing for a team to exploit, and I'm, I'm curious as to why you think we haven't seen more of this uh, in the major minor league relationship.
0: Uh, it, it's like leasing a car instead of buying one. You know, uh, it, it, old-fashioned folks would never dream of leasing a car, but they want to own what they're driving. Um, but modern accounting will say, if you lease, you get a deduction; you get a tax, a tax deduction, and it affords flexibility and it affords cash flow. But I think the Mets made a terrific move in. Uh, relinquishing their their affiliation with Las Vegas in exchange for an ownership relationship in Syracuse.
1: The the Mets have an uh an interesting history with their Triple A club. For years it was in uh, Virginia in the Tidewater Norfolk Tidewater, area. Yep. Right. And then the 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 current owners did something to annoy the the Tidewater owners and they essentially got kicked out and then because of the the affiliation shuffle, they were were left in New Orleans, and they thought New Orleans was bad, so they left there as quickly as they could, (laughs) and they went to Buffalo. And then, again, they did something to annoy the owners of Buffalo, and Buffalo kicked them out. And that's how they ended up in Vegas. That was the the last chair in that game of musical chairs.
0: And, and of course, Vegas you know, is a ridiculous spot for AAA because if you need a, a uh, replacement player on an overnight basis, you're forcing somebody to fly all night and then get into a game in the afternoon having had no sleep.
1: There's There's the travel issue and and there's also the condition of the field and and supposedly because of the the weather conditions out there the 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 infield has been compared to concrete and the uh outfield is is not very much better so i mean i guess that brings me back to my original point why would any owner of an mlb club regardless if they were on the east coast or west coast why would they have their top affiliate playing playing a city that or in a ballpark, or in, in a region that was not suitable. Uh, it, it doesn't. Uh, it, it, it it it's uh, uh, was it it's, uh,
0: it's uh, penny, penny like wise N-line. and pound it, foolish. Yes, absolutely. But it's, it, it, there is a fashion to things, and baseball is not immune to fashion any more than Seventh Avenue is. So if you wear a, a miniskirt today, you would th- you would be thought to look ridiculous. If you if you wore a more length yes. skirt, yes, with your legs particularly, but you you, you get what I'm saying that that there oh, is absolutely. a there's a trend factor, and it's herd mentality. It doesn't make sense, even after you've allowed the accountants to tell you why you should do it.
1: One thing that I found that was very interesting was that the Mets used to own their AAA. Uh, club back when it was uh, in Jacksonville, and I think the, the actual origin of that club is it's the one that used to be in Cuba and then moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and then the Mets moved it to Virginia and then sold it in, in the early 90s, so to, to me, that was real interesting, the, the history of, of their club, and, and perhaps back, back then in the, uh, the 60s and early 70s, it was fashionable for the, for the teams to own their clubs. I'm, I'm not sure how that plays out.
0: Uh, you certainly know a great deal more about this than I do. Uh, I think the, the Jacksonville connection to Cuba and the Havana Sugar Kings may indeed be correct, but I'm, I'm foraging in the deep recesses of my memory now.
1: All right, well, um, let's get to the front of your memory, then. Uh, We have a segment on the show where each week we make a crazy prediction. I'm going to give you mine, and I'm going to ask you to to comment on it, whether or not you think that it's crazy, and then I'm going to ask you for one of yours, okay? Go ahead. Mine is that uh, here recently we've seen a decline in the innings from starters. And, and you even mentioned earlier that you thought that the starting pitcher may have been going the way of the dodo. But I, I think we're we're going to see uh, a, a change in that trend. And I think we're going to see more pitchers lot 200 innings in 2018 than we did uh, here in 2017. So what do you think? How crazy is that?
0: Reasonably crazy, um... What you're, what you're banking on, uh, the difference between one year and the next year, um, can be explained by any number of factors. Uh, 200 innings pitched for a starter these days is rather a lot. And uh, a horse like uh, Sabathia, who's, uh, you know, who did such a splendid job opening for the Yankees in Game 5 of the uh, Division Series, um, he may be looking for a new contract because he's a workhorse. And maybe somebody needs that kind of thing, but I believe the trend is opposite and that you're going to have six relief pitchers with a hundred innings or more on a staff.
1: Well, oh, I would love to see a relief pitcher with uh with a hundred innings pitched. Do, do you recall? Did we have one of those this year? Uh, I can't say. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, Certainly we didn't have one on the Mets, let's put it that way. Well, first off, I'd like to thank you for saying that my prediction was crazy because each week I try to make a crazy prediction, and my guests always say, well, I can see that happening. That doesn't seem crazy to me. So, <laughs> I, and, can't and see, I can't of see this turn, one happening. And, and none of my predictions ever turn out to be true.
0: So, you know, right, well, I, I certainly Brian, feel I think, like I'm I, being I crazy. For, I must win the Cupid doll. I must win the Cupid doll for uh, <laughs> All right, you're for right. pointing your out that, 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 that this emperor has no clothes. Has no clothes. Thank you. <laughs> so what's your crazy prediction? My crazy prediction is not to have a prediction, because as a historian, I'm not in the prediction business. My crystal ball only works in reverse. And sometimes I can find things that run absolutely counter to what everybody else thinks. And as with Pittsfield in 2004... It transforms the way other people talk about baseball. So even a truism, whether it's Abner Doubleday or the Knickerbocker Baseball Club, by digging into the past, you know, my prediction will be that we will learn something about baseball's past, something about baseball in the 19th century or even the 18th century, that will change the way we converse about the game today.
1: Well, I, I like the prediction. I, I can't say whether or not it's crazy, but I, I like it, and I like to think that there's, there's a ton of stuff out there about the early origins of the game that, that we don't know about now. Well, we have time for Absolutely. maybe one more, quick, one more quick question, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the records. We were talking about uh, uh, this a little bit earlier, and, and can we still compare records through time, do you think, or, or do you think it, it's, it's hopeless to even consider that?
0: It's not hopeless. Uh, It's an interesting exercise. Uh, You can't compare raw numbers. You can't compare Willie Keeler's 336 in 1897, and I'm making that one up, to Lyman Bostock's 336 in 1977, uh, and I'm maybe making that one up too. The numbers don't mean the same thing. So that's why we employed relative averages. This was an early sabermetric tool. And uh, you can measure dominance over one's peers over the course of a year or over the course of a player's career, and then take that level of dominance, which, which, which works out beautifully with, say, uh, on-base plus slugging, and uh, then on-base plus slugging plus is normalized to league average. So if you find uh, – here, here's, here's the classic example – Bill Terry hit 401 in 1930, and it's the last time anybody in the National League hit for that high an average, and it gave a pass to Terry to walk right into the Hall of Fame. In 1968, Carl Yastrzemski led the American League with a batting average of 301, which was widely seen as a disgrace for Yastrzemski and a disgrace for the league. But the league's batting average in 1968 was 230, and the league's bat- National League's batting average in 1930 was 3.03. So Bill Terry exceeded his league average with a 4.01 by 32.5%. Carl Yastrzemski exceeded his league average by 32.5%. Wow. Absolutely equivalent accomplishments, yet a 100 points difference in raw numbers.
1: Yeah, I think the the classic example uh, following up on the Yastrzemski thing is uh, Mantle retired after the '68 season because he he thought he was no longer uh, uh, a top player, but his his OPS was uh, what a top ten figure <laughs> yeah, still for the like, league, still like one
0: thirty, right?
1: Yeah, it was incredible. Well. Uh, Speaking of incredible, that's what this half hour has been with MLB historian John Thorne. John, thank you so much for for dropping by the podcast, and and, uh, uh, I I hope you had a good time, and and I hope you'll consider maybe being a guest sometime again in the future.
0: It'll be my pleasure,
1: Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for listening, and please join us again next Wednesday night, uh, again at 11 p.m. Eastern time. Good night, everyone, and goodbye.